last few months, we have been studying the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which are found right at the beginning of Matthew 5, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Tonight we're going to move just a bit forward in chapter 5, um, beginning our reading at Matthew 5, verse 17. And I'll read through verse 26, and then we'll look at just a portion of the Heidelberg Catechism to help us uh, understand and apply this passage. Matthew 5, you'll find the words there in your worship packet. Beginning at verse 17, this is God's holy word. Let's listen closely to it. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments or teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now, the portion that we'll be focusing our attention on tonight. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now we turn in our worship packet towards day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Words are included there on the back side of the scripture reading. Please follow along with me as I read through these questions and answers. Question 105, Lord's Day 40 asks, what is God's will for us in the Sixth Commandment. I am not to belittle, insult, hate, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Question 106, does this commandment refer only to killing? Answer, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are murder. And then finally, question 107, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Well, dear congregation, some of you might be aware that the Constitution of our nation allows each state to label some of its worst criminals dangerous offenders. Dangerous offenders. If a, a state court of law uh, believes that a criminal, a felon, is, is likely to commit more violent crimes after their initial sentence is up, uh, he, the judge might hand down the sentence, dangerous offender. And that criminal must then uh, spend more years behind bars because he's shown himself to be prone towards violent, dangerous behavior and actions. Well, you might say, well, that's interesting. That's an interesting factoid. But, but this dangerous offender sentence certainly doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm a, I'm a peace-loving, law-abiding citizen. I'm not likely to have dangerous offender uh, put on my record. But brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that by nature, we are all potential murderers. We are all violent persons. And we should, in fact, be considered dangerous offenders before the courtroom of God's justice. When it comes to the Sixth Commandment, which we've just read about, which our Lord calls us, commands us not to murder, Jesus teaches us that we all have the basic motive for murder deep within our hearts. And that basic murderous motive that takes up residence in our hearts, that, that leads to the destruction of human life and human dignity, that motive is hatred. Hatred. Its close cousins are envy, anger, vindictiveness, and revenge. Our Lord Jesus, in our passage tonight, teaches us about the heart of the Sixth Commandment, the true meaning, the full meaning that we must not miss, that in no way whatsoever should we injure our neighbor, either by thought, word, or deed. Rather, and this is the good news, we are called and, and God strengthens us by the Spirit to reject murder of the heart and instead to pursue the love of our neighbors and even our enemies at all costs. We're going to see that God's law has two sides. Each commandment has two aspects. First, we're going to see tonight the negative prohibition of God's law, what we are commanded not to do. Secondly, the positive demand of this commandment, how to be positively fulfill the Sixth Commandment. And then finally, uh, the delightful possibility that by God's grace and the strength of the Spirit, we can make progress in obedience to this command. First of all, the negative prohibition. As we read Matthew 5, we noticed that while speaking to the crowds on the mount, Jesus reinforces a very important, very weighty truth that he came to earth, he came clothed in human flesh, not to abolish the law of God, not to put the law of God away, but he came rather to fulfill the law, down to its most minute detail. 
He came to accomplish the law in every part and to teach that anyone who would seek to relax the law or, or take away from the law should be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, Jesus is he's serious about God's law. He's serious about God's commandments. And he says of himself that he is the perfect divine interpreter of the commandments. And so we notice here that uh, leading up to our, our passage, uh, that, that Jesus places his own authoritative pronouncement over against the legalistic interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees, over against the, the misinterpretations of God's law from ages past. And that's why we notice that he introduces his teaching in this way. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, he's going to give his perfect divine interpretation of the commandment. And that tells us that Jesus had a major problem with how the Jewish teachers of his day were understanding the Sixth Commandment. But what exactly had they gotten wrong? What had they gotten wrong? They had said, you shall not murder. But of course, that was the commandment of God that he had given to Moses that was inscribed on the tablets of stone and brought to the people of Israel. No problem there. Now, they had gone on to say, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The ancient teachers added, we might say, a consequence to the commandment. If you murder, there will be consequences, judgment. Now, that's an addition, we might say, but is there anything wrong with it? Is that a wrong interpretation of the commandment? Well, not really. In fact, if we look at Genesis 9, verse 6, we see that the, the Pharisees, the scribes, were fairly on target with that interpretation. Genesis 9 says, whoever sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. There are consequences for murder. And so it would seem that even the Pharisees, even the scribes of Jesus' day, had a right understanding that the murder of a human life displeases God. It has disastrous consequences, judgment for that person. God delights in his image bearers. Murder will not go unpunished. And so on a surface level, there doesn't appear to be any problem with the way in which the men of long ago interpreted and applied the Sixth Commandment. So what is Jesus' problem with their teaching? Is Jesus perhaps being a bit too picky? Is he putting too sharp of an edge on the commandment, perhaps? Well, of course we know that that is not the case. Jesus is the perfect interpreter of God's law. What did Jesus see? What problem did he detect? He saw that for the scribes and the Pharisees, for the ancient interpreters of the law, what was wrong was not what they had said. It was what they had left unsaid about the commandment. Jesus saw that they had not taught, they had not applied the sixth commandment as fully, as thoroughly as they should have. They hadn't gone far enough to prevent and condemn the things that caused the murder of a precious human life because they were simply content to stick with the superficial, literal meaning of the command. And so Jesus comes, and, and like the doctor of the soul, he, he wields a surgeon's scalpel, and he digs deeper to unearth, to uncover the spiritual source of the sin of murder 
in contrast to what was taught. And he says, you have heard that it was said, don't take a human life by killing a person unjustly. But I tell you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says that what lies at the heart of murder is anger and hatred toward a fellow image bearer. So just when we thought that this commandment only spoke of murder as a physical act, punishable by the state, Jesus says, no, we are all dangerous offenders of this sixth commandment because his law doesn't refer only to the killing of the body. Rather, as answer 106 in the Heidelberg Catechism says, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, and vindictiveness. Even these things are considered by God to be nothing less than murder. And the important reality of that point, brothers and sisters, is that we can murder someone without even laying a finger on We can murder someone without even laying a finger You might remember in 1 Samuel 25 that wicked Nabal used mere words when he mocked David, God's anointed, and yet his language was full of deadly poison. We read in Proverbs 12, verse 18, that reckless words pierce, pierce like a sword. And for many among us, some of our friends, some of our co-workers, our family members have been, have been robbed of their honor and robbed of their reputation. They've watched their futures disintegrate before their very eyes because of slander and backbiting and gossip that have flowed from our own lips. That's the sad reality. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, members of Christ in the church have become deathly discouraged because maybe out of envy for their success, we have abandoned them. Refuse to encourage them in the faith. Refuse to celebrate with them in God's goodness to them. These things, too, are destruction of precious human life. And this is an important part of Jesus' lesson for us to grasp. The kind of sinful anger that leads to bitter and insulting words. The kind of sinful anger that leads to vengeful thoughts and looks and gestures of contempt for one another that is by its very nature murder, murder of the heart. And it deserves God's judgment. Jesus here teaches his listeners about the severity of this offense. And he offers several examples of murder of the heart. In verse 22, he says, anyone who says to his brother, and the original word here is raka, raka, an Aramaic word that means, you imbecile, you empty-minded fool, you. Anybody who says that to his brother should answer to the religious leaders, the council of the Jews and the Sanhedrin. 
Moreover, he says to those who say to their brother, you fool, is guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. These offenses, whether they are judged by God or man, are basically identical in their intent. And Jesus' point is that anyone who shows contempt, that spirit of contempt and, and utter disgust and hatred and disdain for a fellow brother has murdered in his heart and would be liable to God's judgment. This kind of offense, it might seem to us so trivial, so unimportant. That kind of offense is deadly in the eyes of Christ. And so he commands us to kill murder at its root in the human heart. As a young boy, once in a while during the summer, uh, my mom would ask me to come outside with her and pull weeds. At that time, I hated pulling weeds. Now, that's what I do on my day off, and I enjoy it quite a bit. <laughs> Makes my wife happy, so I do it. But as a child, because I wanted the job to be done as quickly as possible, I just sort of plucked the weed off the surface. But of course, I didn't dig deep to pull the root out in order to kill that weed, in order to actually remove that weed. And so a few days later, of course, I was back at it pulling weeds. Well, God commands us to kill murder in the heart. So don't be merely concerned about the, 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 the physical act, but to be aware of the, the heart of the matter. But that which leads to murder, that which is murder itself, anger, hatred, vindictiveness, and revenge, takes up root in the heart, and that's where it must be pulled out. That is one side of the command. God calls us to say no to murder in all of its deadly forms. But, but saying no to murder means something else. It means saying yes to life. Saying no to murder means saying yes to life. And according to our Lord, that is a radical yes. Our Lord calls us to go on the offensive, to search after our neighbors, to actively love them. We're not simply to spare our neighbors the worst, we are to give them the best. I love the question that question 107 of our catechism asks. It says, is it, is it enough? Is it sufficient that we just don't kill our neighbor in any way? Is it, is it just okay that I don't kill them physically and I, and I don't harbor any ill feelings towards them? I'm not angry at them. Isn't that enough to fulfill the commandment? The Pharisees certainly thought so. Obedience to the letter of the law was enough. That's what they chose to believe. And here again is a way in which the Pharisees of Jesus' day hadn't gone far enough in applying the Sixth Commandment because they had left out the central principle of love without which the commandment loses its meaning. And so the catechism to that question, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way, says no. That's not fulfilling the commandment. There's more to it. By condemning envy, envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to him, to protect him or her from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. That is how far we must go to fulfill the sixth commandment. And so God's positive demand, we've looked at his negative 
requirement, but the positive demand is that we love our neighbors. We love our enemies with a Christian love. We even pray for those who would persecute us. Now here we might pause and wonder, do we really need to go that far? Why, after all, is God so concerned, not only about abstaining from murder, but that we positively put our, ourselves out there to abide by the principle of love, to search out our neighbors and our friends and our family members and even our enemies, to love them as ourselves, to be patient, be peace-loving. Why must we go this far? All of us, in, in some way or another, I'm sure, have experienced strained relationships with family members and friends and co-workers. And we wonder, can't we just leave them alone? Can't we just ignore them? Can't we just sort of avoid crossing paths? Isn't that enough? Must we so actively love them? What's the big deal, after all? It's not as if these strained relationships affect my relationship with God, right? Once again, Jesus responds to our attempts to, to relax the law, and he gives us an answer so sharp, so pointed that we need to take notice. He says in verses 22 to 23, so if, verse 23, we'll start at verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, if you are, you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that someone has a legitimate grievance against you, your first order of business must be to go. Leave. It's an imperative, a command there. Go and be reconciled. Love peace. Pursue peace. And then offer your gift. Here Jesus sums up for us. In some very practical terms, what is the heart of this commandment? The positive application of the rule is that our hearts must at all times be filled with love for our neighbors as for ourselves. Not with sinful anger. Not with murderous hatred. And we must take that positive application of the command seriously. Because if we are trying to honor the Lord with our lives, if we are bringing the offerings of our lives and our worship to God, but at the same time are deliberately failing to love a brother or a sister as we should. If we are failing to love a brother or a sister, failing to be reconciled with them, then our love for God and our worship of Him will suffer. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I implore you, brothers and sisters, if tonight you know that your brother or sister in the Lord even thinks, even thinks, that they have a just reason to be upset with you or dissatisfied or angry with you. It needs to be your primary concern to strive and be reconciled with that brother or sister. 
lest the offerings of your life are rendered unacceptable to God. We need to seek love and peace right now before it is too late. The call is urgent. Jesus sums it up in verses 25 to 26. Take care of it right away before you have to bear the penalty of being unreconciled with the brother. In Romans 5, verse 8, we're told that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I have received the love and the, the grace of God through Jesus Christ at a time when we were still his enemies, while we still despised him and we were blaspheming him. That's good news. It's the best news we'll ever hear, and it's, and it's that good news that should compel us to do the same for those around us. The only way to fulfill the positive demand of the Sixth Commandment out of gratitude for the grace and the love of Christ is to cultivate an inner disposition of love towards others, a love that is motivated by a sincere desire to see the salvation of our friends as well as our enemies. As we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, we remember that he came into our world, a hostile world, a world cluttered with walled fortresses. We put up those walls to keep out those we hate and despise. We put up those barriers to keep us from the obligation to love those on the outside. But Christ came to bring peace, to bring about reconciliation with God and with one another, to send the love of God into the hearts of men. He entered into our time and our space. He adopted our, our weaknesses, our infirmities. He embodied in his own flesh the far-reaching principle of the Sixth Commandment, and he did it perfectly. When he was reviled against and spat upon, he did not retaliate. During his crucifixion, he, he prayed for his executioners. He loved his enemies to death, even death on a cross. He loved us, the seemingly unlovable. And he poured into our hearts the, the love of God. He made us, as we learned this morning, to be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven at a time when we were still his enemies, disobedient people. As those who have tasted this, as those who enjoy the, the saving grace and love of Christ, it is now our privilege, it's our duty, it's our joy to share in the mission of our Savior. It's our delightful task to love and, and to pray for the salvation of those who hate us in return, rather than to murder them in our hearts. At the very end of this chapter, chapter 5, and verse 48, we have this call, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are called as believers to complete, full-grown, to be lacking in nothing in the way of Christian love for our neighbors. But we need to be honest with ourselves in terms of this call from God tonight. Because even the love of the most mature believer among us is but a faint shadow 
of the infinite, perfect, marvelous love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And we might wonder, is such love even possible for me, weak and frail as I am? It is as we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is only one man, one man, who never had a desire for revenge, even while he was being reviled against. There is only one man who perfectly fulfilled the essence of the Sixth Commandment to the perfect satisfaction of God the Father. There's only one man whose love extended to the furthest corners of the earth. Praise God for that man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because though by nature we are prone to hate God and our neighbor, Yet by the power of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we have a real beginning of new obedience in which we can truly love God and truly love our neighbor and truly love even our enemy. By grace, through faith in Christ, through the aid of the Holy Spirit, we can make small but real beginnings in obedience to this command. Not just to some of God's commands, but to all of them. That's the good news. That by the regenerating grace of God, you and I can be delivered from sinful hate and the darkness of our hearts. And we must pray continually for that. As we ask in faith, our Heavenly Father will give us that gift to love and keep us from hate. Some of you know me well and some of my movie preferences know that one of my favorite films is the 1959 edition of Ben-Hur. If you know anything about that wonderful story, Saga, is that uh, it focuses its attention on a man named Judah Ben-Hur. He is a, a Jewish royalty uh, living in Jerusalem, and he has everything taken from him, his family, his livelihood, his riches, even his freedom. It's taken away from him by his childhood friend, a Gentile and a Roman. And throughout the, the film, uh, Judah is seeking to exact revenge on his friend, Masal, for all that he's taken from him. His heart is filled with anger and revenge towards his old friend. Throughout the film, he, he does get revenge on his friend, but he's not satisfied. He has no peace. Even when he stumbles upon our Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the film, he can't believe Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers. But at the end of the film, he finds himself at the foot of the cross of Christ. And he comes home and he says this, almost at the moment he died, I heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, even then. And I felt his voice take this sword out of my hand. Brothers and sisters, as we pray in faith, the Spirit of God will renew a right spirit in us. And he will take that sword of envy that sword of hatred and anger out of our hands and replace it with a godly love 
Our Heavenly Father will strengthen us by His Spirit of grace to pursue reconciliation, to pursue peace with those whom we have broken relationships. And by that same grace, we can fight against our old murderous selves and put on the new man. Walk in the light of Christ our Savior, who once and for all abolished death and darkness and brought life and immortality to light. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we come to you and confess that our hearts have so often been filled with murderous intentions and murderous desires, not only towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and the church, but also towards those on the outside. We confess, Lord, that we do not think very much about how we murder one another with our thoughts and with our words and with our gestures. Forgive us, O Lord. Point out these sins to us. Make us aware of them. And Lord, forgive us of them. Lord, help us also to recognize that to obey your righteous commands goes beyond simply avoiding these thoughts, or and deeds that are contrary to your command. We must also be active. We must also go out and, and seek out those who need our love and our care. We must seek to be reconciled, to be at peace with those who may think they have something uh, to be angry about with us. Father, we pray that you would make us agents of peace of love and reconciliation and unity within the church, and that we would not hesitate to reach out to those in need. Heavenly Father, we thank you that where we fail, and we do fail at this, that there is one who stands in our place before you, before your throne, who stands on account of his own perfect righteousness, as one who has perfectly fulfilled every dot, every iota of the law, in our place, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you that by grace through faith, and through being united with Christ and instilled with the Holy Spirit, we too can make progress in holiness in obeying this duty that you have given to us to love and not hate. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.